Welcome back to Humans of Grad School, the podcast about humans who happen to go to grad school. Being a grad student can often become a large part of our identity, but it's not the only part. This podcast aims to share the stories of students behind the research. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Humans of Grad School. I can't believe I'm already recording the third episode. Um, If you can't already tell by the crispness and clearness of my voice, I went and got a real microphone. Um, I think it sounds a little bit better than what I was dealing with. Um, However, you will see... When I interviewed this guest, I did not have this microphone, so I'm using it for all of my editing stuff and for future episodes, but uh, yeah, so apologies again for the audio. We still sound like we're in a Drake song, but that should be resolved soon. Also, one other thing, Um, we are now on Instagram, yay! Um, I think I just sounded a little bit like Alexis from Schitt's Creek, like, yay, David, yay. Um, (laughs) anyways, we're on Instagram now. So if you'd like to follow the podcast, the handle is at humans of GS podcast. So humans of GS podcast. So anyways, without further ado, let's get to the episode. Today's guest is Anima, reflective traveler, climbing cook, and compassionate mess. Let's hear her story. So I wanted to be a doctor working for Doctors Without Borders. And I'm not sure if that's like a stereotypical South Asian answer to provide, but it kind of derived from doing this grade seven project about who is my hero? And, you know, folks were picking their, like one of their grandparents, one of their parents or their sister or brother. And I just could not pick one person for my family. And so I decided to do a project on Doctors Without Borders and researching more about them led to me realizing, you know, the work that they're doing together as a team, you know, persevering through hard times inspired me to go towards that trajectory and my mom was, you know, very happy to hear that. I don't know if you know this, but uh, like in the South Asian community, and I hope I'm not generalizing, but you have three options. It's basically you'd be a doctor, engineer, or a lawyer. <laughs> so my mom was like very happy to hear that I picked one of those three. But yeah, so that's, that's what I wanted to be growing up. So how did you hear about Doctors Without Borders to begin with? Like, where did that even start? That's a good question. I'm trying to think. My sister, my sister Nella, she's uh, she's very involved in humanitarian um, and history and political science. And she's three years older than me. So at this time, she was probably in high school. And a lot of the kind of um, activities and social activities that she did was related to uh, social changes. And she may have mentioned Doctors Without Boards at one point. Um, because partly growing up, I would always want to like emulate my sister. Uh, I really look up to her. She's an amazing like 
person, my best friend. So it, I think it came from her, from that idea. Um, might, might have stemmed from there and then just doing my own research for the project. Okay. Who is Anima now who currently is not a doctor without borders? Yeah, that's a good question. So I ended up um, doing climbing and cooking instead <laughs> on top of grad school. <laughs> but I, I believe I, when I, as I was, you know, preparing for this um, conversation, just to jot down some notes, I realized it was actually like a, a thread in my interests and it coming from Doctors Without Borders. So while I'm not in medical school or not a medical profession, there, the idea of um, doing like a bigger, broader social change or health systems change is kind of a common thread in my, I guess, trajectory. So like in high school, I'm taking my typical sciences, but on top of that, I was really interested in history as well as world religions. So understanding the humanistic side on top of, you know, chemistry and physics and biology. But I found myself a bit more interested or, you know, had a natural tendency to, you know, look from a human perspective. And I think that gravitated towards an undergrad. So I did my undergrad at McMaster in the life sciences program, again, with the idea of wanting to go to medical school. So doing my prereqs and whatnot. But then it was in second year that I took a health and aging course. And that introduced me to social determinants of health. So those broader changes and those broader health system you know, aspects that are important. And so I, I naturally gravitated to more courses like that. So I took Epi as well as knowledge translation, health and disease. And I did really well in those courses versus the courses of cell biology or physics or organic chemistry where I like did awful. Um, so that should have been like a signifier to me that, hey, you may have a broader appreciation or interest around that. And I think that's how and who I am as of right now, where I'm in health services research, looking into health systems uh, changes as well as policy, all wrapped around knowledge translation. So, so that's all to say that um, to say that on top of that, I like to climb and cook. So it's just like you know a, a bit of a hodgepodge of things right now. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about your climbing and cooking. Like, can you tell me more about them and how you got started doing each of them? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my family loves food, just loves food, loves to eat food, loves to cook, loves to go travel and find, you know, the cuisines or um, dishes that are, you know, really uh, the favorite of the locals in the country. So we tend to spend more time and money on that versus maybe where we're, li where we're staying for a trip. So I think growing up, I've always had this gravity towards food. And it may also come apart where I was born in Singapore, lived in Australia, lived in Canada and the States. So being able to travel and see the different cultures and cuisines all kind of wrapped me in this food interest. And it was only, um, I would say, so after I graduated, I took an internship in Geneva at the World Health Organization for three months. That was my first time living alone. So I had to learn how to cook in order to survive. <laughs> so um, I would, you know, FaceTime my mom or my grandma uh, to ask, how do I cook this Bengali dish or this or that? 
just so that I have something that's close to home, know that I have that connection. So, and then when I was living, so I lived in the States um, as well after my internship uh, in Atlanta, doing a fellowship at the CDC. And so, again, I was living on my own for three years. Um, and it was a way for me to connect back with my family and my friends. So it all kind of wrapped in, in like where I've traveled and where I've been, and as well as like my family. And um, in terms of climbing, so climbing is an interesting one. I never suspected that I would be someone who A, enjoys the outdoors and B, is doing some like death-defying sport where, you know, you're putting your life online for each time you climb. Given that I am so I'm an introvert at heart, but I think with like being so like to be adventurous and try to explore, I think that this naturally came at a good time. And I was like, when I was living in the States in Atlanta, I didn't have a car there for the three years. And I felt like I would be, you know, stuck at home. It was actually one of my like, closest friends today, Caitlin, she was also a fellow at that time. And she was looking for um, like a hiking buddy. And I was also looking for something to do and enjoy my time in Atlanta, and Georgia, generally. And, and yeah, so I asked her, can I tag along for one of, the, one of her hikes on the weekend? And that kind of just steamrolled into like going on hikes, like trying to go like every other weekend or every weekend, going to different states. And this is also the same friend where, in addition to my other friend, Jenny, where we all got into climbing. And that was because, so I was introduced to climbing or bouldering. It's another section of climbing. There's bouldering, which is like without ropes. And then there's also top rope and lead where you have a rope. And I got into bouldering before I left uh, with my friends in, um, in Canada. But then in Atlanta, I couldn't find like a community that I could like continue to climb with. And so it took a couple of years, but Jenny and Caitlin, we all climbed together and did top rope. So it just, uh, it just continued. It was nice to like um, continue that activity. And we all came together because uh, we all got our hearts broken in that same year. And so this was our way to kind of, uh, I guess, to move past that pain and, you know, empower ourselves and know that, you know, we can continue to do challenges and we'll be okay. So so I think climbing for me has like a another special part, partly because it helped me move through past a time that I wasn't uh, the greatest or wasn't feeling the greatest. I feel like my, I feel like I just kind of steamrolled like through, through two things all at once. So... <laughs> I hope that's okay. <laughs> no, that's great. I actually wanted to first go back to the fact, you know, you've said that you've lived in multiple countries. Like, what has that experience been like for you to live in and then move from place to place? That's a really good question. And I've um, thought about that, like, in terms of how that's impacted me in terms of who I am right now and the way that I think. And I think it's overall has I guess showed me the privileges that I have from these experiences so being able to travel um, to be able to integrate and be part of different cultures as well as explore different cuisines so it really I think living in Australia or Canada or the States showcased how how humans are so different yet they're the same at the same time 
I think it provided more of a worldly perspective, um, keeping an open mind, as well as being sensitive to those, you know, privileges that I may have and those that may not. So it's, I think that's kind of led me to being a bit more understanding and empathetic. Um, So yeah, I mean, I don't really, so I was pretty young when I was in Australia. So I did like kindergarten up to grade two. But I remember just a warm sense from the Bengali community that my parents were part of and growing up with like kids that that looked like me and being able to relate that way. It was different at school. So my sister and I, we were probably only South Asians um, in that entire school. So it was probably from kindergarten to grade five. I don't know if I knew how that impacted me then as a kid, but I know for sure now that it may have led to like me not feeling as connected with my peers for more for different reasons. So I felt sometimes I didn't belong or that's the the story that I tell myself now. And then moving to Canada was about like, you know, seven, I guess. And I, that was actually quite eye-opening, um, being in a classroom and seeing that, hey, there are folks that look just like me and I can connect and we're all kind of, you know, learning and growing together. So it was, to me, it felt like I, I wasn't the outsider. And I think growing up and today, I'm like, you know, I try to include everyone or, you know, try to not to exclude those. So just to be a bit more inclusive. I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, but it's kind of like that idea <laughs> of being more open, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, Monica. It's <laughs> totally fine. I think this is a great path to go down. It reminds me of like The Office, you know, when Michael Scott is like, I'm just going to start a sentence and it's going to find itself along the way. I know, literally, that's where it is. That's what happens. Yeah. It happens to the best of us. Yeah. It happens all the time. This is... It's going to be a great recording. <laughs> yeah, no, it's going to be wonderful. I'm probably going to keep some of this in just to give you a heads up because it's very normal. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Um, I think first, I quickly want to go back to your internship in Geneva. Sure. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and what that was like for you? Yeah. Um. I guess I should give a bit of a backstory in terms of how I got there, and then maybe that will help uh, explain what I did there. Um, so during my undergrad, I had the privilege and opportunity to be a research assistant from second year until I graduated with the McMaster Health Forum, which is a WHO collaborating center for evidence-informed policy. And I think through their Maybe it was because I wrote it in the emails, but I literally just sent out cold emails to folks at WHO to see if they were interested in taking an intern. And I think their policies have changed since then. I think there is like an actual process you have to go through um, because they were changing that at the, t- at the time that I was there. And so one supervisor messaged me and said, hello, let's do an interview. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And it sounded promising. And then I wouldn't hear from him for like a couple of months. <laughs> and I was like, okay, is this actually happening? Uh, so I'd follow up. And then it took a while, but I, but I, I um, traveled to Geneva in July or beginning of August 2015. So right after I graduated and was there until the beginning of November. 
And I worked in the non-communicable diseases department, specifically in the physical activity and nutrition department. And that was the first time, A, that I um, was living on my own and B, traveled on my own. C, trying to set up myself in a different country, um, trying to figure out all this transportation and living. And um, it was a great experience um, that way. And so anyway, going back to uh, what I did. So I, I worked on like technical packages, which were um, being sent to like member states, which are essentially like any country um, that is recognized by the WHO. And it was literally around policies and um, specific public health interventions related to salt reduction, as well as uh, improving physical activity generally. So I was able to see more around the process of salt reduction and how a technical package is created. So involving stakeholders and experts all around the world, as well as you know, incorporating that information into a package. And then as an intern, I did more so around, let me finesse this like paragraph with uh, edits. Um, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily as uh, impactful, influential, but it was a great experience in the sense that I was able to see how an international organization works, especially in the UN system. And whether I see myself in this space or if there's something else I need to look look towards. So for me, it was a more of an exploratory time, both personally and professionally. So I felt I felt very privileged to even be there. So, you know, walking up the first day to see the WHO headquarters, it was, uh, it was kind of spooky. I mean, I've only seen the WHO headquarters, you know, in movies or, you know, pretty, it's pretty neat. And um, I was able to attend a lot of um, meetings that were happening there. So at that time, it was like the beginning of the Ebola response. And so they were starting to gather more information around how it's being spread and the death rates. And so they would have these meetings, uh, which interns were able to attend. So it was really cool to see that, just to see how the processes worked for governance um, and more of like that larger scale. And I think one of the big, bigger parts was like getting to meet interns from all, all around the world. I would say that I saw more people from coming from like high income countries. So from the UK, a lot from the US, Canada, uh, as well as a couple of folks in Australia, uh, which I think they're now trying to address that uh, desperate situation. So involving more interns that are coming from different other different countries. But it was really fascinating to see how um, and where people were coming from and their education background. So some people came from public health versus being a, um, coming from medicine. There's a couple of economists. So it was interesting to see like this almost like a mosaic of uh, folks all trying to figure out what they're trying to do at the WHO, as well as um, exploring more of uh, Geneva and Switzerland. So, it was an overall a really cool experience um, and really helped kind of gravitate me towards public health more. And, but also realizing that maybe I'm not really catered for international um, level work, but maybe more of a ground level or a country level work. And that's actually how I landed 
my fellowship at the CDC was uh, through the WHO. So, yeah. Okay. So you've had all these experiences. You've traveled all over the world. Where are you now in your life and geographically? (laughs) (laughs) So geographically, um, I'm in Toronto right now and kind of coming back and forth from Toronto and Oakville. My parents live in Oakville. So it's nice to be close to them. But I've been in Toronto since last year. And I guess I should provide like a time frame. So 2015, I was in Geneva. And then I came back to Canada. And then right in 2016, I went to Atlanta. And then September 2019, I started my master's at UFT. And I feel myself um, being in Toronto for a little while. I'm hoping to uh, continue more of my research after my master's um, into my PhD. And then after that, I don't know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> you might have noticed that I've uh, just been everywhere. <laughs> I've just kind of been everywhere. <laughs> so it's hard for me to pinpoint where I'm going to be next. That's okay. How did you end up in grad school after all of these experiences? Yeah, so I've always known that I would pursue higher education but I just didn't know when. Um, and it might have been an inherent understanding from my parents or from my culture that it's a good thing to continue on your education experience. And I think having these experiences internationally kind of fortified that because I was in that space after undergrad. What do I want to do? I didn't want to take a rash decision. I tend to be indecisive. So I think these experiences fortified that, uh, especially my time in Atlanta with the CDC. I was coming in with a bachelor's degree, whereas everyone else in the agency who are, you know, doing research have um, a master's or a PhD or a professional degree. So in order for me to even be considered or to move up in any of these uh, agencies or kind of continue to do the work or lead some of this work, I would need that kind of, you know, level of education. So it's like both like I came out of a necessity and as well as, you know, my continual curiosity and perhaps a bit of pressure from, (laughs) uh, from family expectations. So that's how I kind of landed into grad school. I realized that I needed to like reel myself back and see what's actually important. And what's important to me was more around the research that a university is doing right now, as well as um, the networking that they may have, supervisors that are doing interesting work that I resonate more with. So it wasn't more so like a name um, versus, you know, actually genuine and interesting research. And I think that took me the four years that I was out of undergrad to realize that, um, that it's, for me at least, it's not about the prestige of a place versus actual genuine work. So, so that's how I, how I came to grad school. So while we're on this path, can you tell me about your research? Yeah, um, it's super cool. So I'm in this middle space. Uh, called knowledge translation. It's also called implementation science or knowledge exchange. There's actually um, a study by McKibben and colleagues that there's over 90 terms to describe the field that I'm in. So 
what Canada uses is not translation. And it's essentially this middle ground between research and practice. And how do we move all this amazing research that folks are doing in different fields, specifically for health for me, and how do we move it into practice? So practice meaning in a clinical setting for doctors to use clinical recommendations, um, for policymakers to use research evidence that can, you know, help inform policy, or, you know, for everyday citizens, like if we take COVID, for example, we have all this information about how to effectively communicate, but how do we actually put that into play? Um, so knowledge translation is kind of that field where it helps to, you know, synthesize or disseminate or implement these research evidence into practice, which is pretty cool because uh, I was reading something from Chalmers and Glasio. They wrote it in 2018, but they were saying that almost 85% of medical and clinical research goes to waste, which equates to almost $200 billion a year. And some of the reasons that they come up with is that some of the research is not necessarily being translated into practice or they're finding it's like null findings and how do we address that. So this sphere that I'm in helps to kind of put these two together and kind of create a more of a pipeline from research to practice. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> I'm trying to finesse how I describe NOS translation because I find, uh, find that it's a little difficult to explain given that it's a bit of a, that it touches a lot of different fields um, while it's also a very new field. <laughs> Yeah. I think sometimes too, as researchers, we kind of get caught up in the jargon. And then when we have to sit and explain it, it was like, oh, <laughs> like what I'm saying might not be understandable to everybody else because I'm so used to speaking about it with people who also do the same thing as me. Exactly, exactly. And um, my supervisor, she uh, you know, recommends me kind of trying to do some sort of elevator pitch to finesse what I mean by knowledge translation in my work. And so I'm continually adapting that and trying to figure out what's the best way to describe it. So I hope it makes sense. <laughs> it makes perfect sense, do not worry. Okay, so thinking about your research still along this path, what is something, like, like if I were to frame it as like a fun fact, like what is, like you gave me the fact about like 85% of clinical research goes to waste. Like, are there any other kind of fun facts or interesting facts about your research that maybe the general person outside of your field of research doesn't know? I guess one thing that always comes to mind, I think it's quoted in a lot of these articles, is that it takes 17 years for research to go into practice or to be incorporated or integrated into practice. Uh, and I think that number comes from just from the uh, start of an inception of a research project to actually doing the design and recruiting and, and producing the results. So the fact that it takes 17 years to actually see it in a doctor's office, for example, to see, you know, blood pressure um, measurements have changed or, for example, or it hasn't changed that much. But, um, but that kind of information takes so long to get out, get out of the pipeline. So that's kind of like what NOS Translation is trying to do is trying to like shorten that time frame, um, which is uh, pretty fascinating uh, to see. So I think I think what we're seeing right now is with COVID, for example, uh, folks are you know producing what 
they call our rapid reviews, um, which are basically synthesizing information and distilling it into these packages of information that could be used for policymakers. And usually these, are, these rapid reviews are stemming from systematic reviews, which take you know, a number of years, but now they're you know, made it more efficient so that this information can get into the hands of a policymaker um, to enact these policy changes for something that's like changing day to day. So being able to inform someone more of like a real time status is, I think, really fascinating with this field. Um, and yeah, it's, you can see it kind of being, being played um, right now with the pandemic. You had mentioned earlier, too, that you're hoping to move into your PhD. So is this realm of research what you want to continue doing as your trajectory in grad school continues? Yes. Yeah. So I actually had, I've always wanted to do my PhD um, since like being at the CDC. I, that was like my trajectory that I was going into. So and I knew it, that implementation science and loss translations um, was the field that I wanted to go in. So when I came into my master's, I was talking to my supervisor about our project. And it naturally lends to a bigger PhD project um, where we're trying to identify, you know, specific tools or guidance or frameworks that can help someone do KT, so do NOS translation, be it... Um, you know, synthesize information or disseminate it or implement it or how to keep an intervention more sustainable. So we're trying to find all these tools and then the idea is, well, we have all these tools, that's great, but how do we know that it's actually effective or it's of high quality? Because the theory here is that if it's of a high quality tool, it will actually do the work you want. So be it disseminate, implement, sustain, or scale up an intervention. So my master's is kind of like that beginning stage of my future PhD work where I'm trying to identify these tools and the qualities of them or the characteristics of them that make them a good quality tool. And then the future work, hopefully my PhD is to create that quality assessment tool that you can apply to existing ones or when you're developing KT tools. So it's a, it's kind of, it's nice because it has like that natural, you know, trend towards what I'm working towards. Uh, that's, that's the hope if I get it <laughs> um, in the application process. So. <laughs> okay. So speaking of a high quality knowledge translation tools, how do you feel about TikTok as a <laughs> knowledge translation tool? Honestly, I think they should use it more. I think it would be a great way to disseminate information. And that's a great thing that you brought up because um, one, of the, one of my peers was like, yeah, they should use TikTok. And, and that was like, a, you know, um, in the beginning of the pandemic and he thought about that. So I think it'd be great. <laughs> it's like Justin Trudeau, get on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. Teresa, get on TikTok. But yeah. Girlfriend, get on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The other thing you mentioned was that you're in the midst of applying for your PhD right now. So do you want to tell me how that process is going for you so far or how it's been? Yeah. Um, I'm getting my pieces together now. <laughs> like I, I have my references and everything. It's, I think 
the decision to do a PhD and I'm staying in the same program or intending to stay in the same program. So it made the decision a little easier um, because HPME is strong in off translation implementation science and I love working with my supervisor. So I think that process has made it, has been easier for me because I know for sure this is what I want to do. Um, but being able to convey that in a letter of intent is where I'm kind of stuck. Um, yeah, writing's, writing's hard. <laughs> um, so how do I, you know, emphasize that implementation science is really important for health services research. But I've, I've reached out to um, current PhD students and everyone's so supportive and helpful. I think that's the big piece, um, you know, everyone being so supportive and we're all in the same boat. Um, and they've, you know, helped, you know, provide advice or provide a bit more perspective on the program. Um, so it's, I feel like it's a very much of a teamwork <laughs> approach here. So after recording our episode, Anima sent me a message saying that there was someone else who she wanted to talk about being supportive of her and not only with her PhD applications, but this individual is very supportive of her overall. So I asked her to record a separate voice clip slash voice note that she sent to me, and I'm just quickly inserting it here. Speaking about supportive people in my life, like my family and friends, I'm also grateful for my boyfriend, David, who brings out so much light and fun and warmth, um, who lets me be myself while we're also supporting each other's happiness and dreams. He's in his PhD, which is nice because we're on similar trajectories and pathways, so we can laugh or cry or everything in between about grad school. And he's someone, you know, I could go with, go outdoors, go hiking, or, you know, have our indecisiveness together about what we eat or watch. So I, yeah, I just wanted to give a quick little shout out. And now back to our scheduled programming. So fingers crossed, it's due next month. So <laughs> we'll have to check in on you in a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do I get it in or not? <laughs> exactly. So still thinking about your time in grad school, mm -hmm. do you feel like, and I know that your tenure in grad school thus far is maybe a little bit shorter than some other individuals who have been in grad school for maybe longer or currently in their PhDs. But do you feel like in the time that you've been in grad school, you've learned anything about yourself? Yes, definitely. Um, it's been a, a time of like a lot of growth and change and knowing how much, I guess, how much I can stretch as well as being able to like take a step back. Um, and I think my experiences coming into grad school also helped understand more of myself. Um, so understanding even just like my day to day, um, knowing what my schedule preference is like. So more of like a nine to five kind of deal or, and, you know, leaving my evenings to just rejuvenate or do more self care or going out for a walk. Um, also knowing that, Grad school is an aspect of me, but not the entirety of me. And I think that's part of what the podcast also talks about, where um, it's, it's, it's a part of life, but it's not the, the whole of it. So I, I try to, you know, keep that lifestyle or work-life balance way more um, up there versus being, like, versus being, you know, 
drained from it. Um, and being more understanding of myself or being, you know, more self-compassion. There's this like um, clinical psychologist, Dr. Kristen Neff. She she works in self-compassion. So she's like one of the leading experts in that. And she basically coined a term called compassionate mess, <laughs> uh, which is like how I feel right now with grad school. <laughs> um, you know, the mess part, you can kind of self-explanatory maybe with grad school. <laughs> Um, and then the compassionate piece is, uh, you know, you're being a friend to yourself as well um, and, you know, showing kindness to yourself. So when there are days that are hard, um, knowing that it's okay and there's a new day tomorrow. Um, so bringing that compassion to yourself, which also just kind of naturally, you know, exerts to others. So being kind to others and knowing we're all kind of all in the same boat, <laughs> all going through, you know, struggles that are similar, but also different at the same time. So I think that's what grad school has emphasized more for me, um, is that idea of being a compassionate mess. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so now thinking about, how do I want to phrase this? You have an idea of what you want to do for your PhD. Do you have an idea of what you want to do or where you want to be when that's over? I feel like this question should never be asked to like anyone <laughs> in grad school. <laughs> I just asked the most terrifying question. <laughs> anyone, the most annoying question that every family get together. Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah. No, it's honestly, I think it's a good question. And also, you know, a question that makes you take a pause and... I'll be a bit more political around that. <laughs> um, did you incite, did it incite any panic in you when I asked it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I could feel, like, you know, a rush of blood. <laughs> just, like, heart, you know, palpitations just a little. Uh, my anxiety kind of creeping out there. Um, it's okay. It's, like, you know, I feel like I prepared myself for this question. As you said, like, from the number of family members who ask you that. So, I have thought about it and I've thought about it during my time, like at CDC, especially. Um, and it stems from having like fantastic supervisors there and seeing their work lifestyle. And I think that's what, you know, led me towards the way that I think about grad school, just being a, an aspect of myself, not the entirety, as well as uh, having a more of a balance. Um, I think it, a PhD program still provides you with like those advanced technical skills that you can apply to different projects um, that are that is outside of academia. So be it in um, industry or government. I see myself more in government um, setting. I I think I tend to gravitate more of the I guess systems level way of thinking about health services and healthcare. So anything that. But honestly, I'll just like go live in the mountains. <laughs> uh, anything that allows me to just live in the mountains um, with my greenhouse that I see myself, you know, either building or um, having, as well as my beehives and beekeeping hobby that I hope to cultivate in the future. So honestly, anything that will help bring those dreams come true. Um, in addition to being able to be part of uh, that collective action to change health systems. So, yeah, I think <laughs> just to be completely honest. Uh, so, yeah. 
I love it. (laughs) So now thinking about Anima, who is in grad school, who researches, who climbs, who cooks, who travels, who wants to be a kind and compassionate and empathetic human being, are there any words of wisdom that you want to share or feel as though have been very important to you as you move along in your life? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. As you were um, asking, a couple of things popped into my mind. And the first one is surrounding yourself with supportive and genuine and caring peers, supervisors, mentors, family members, friends. Uh, is so essential. I mean, they're, you know, they're there to help you support you and kind of help you move along. I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here had it not been for, you know, those connections and um, mentorship that I got. So having that or building that or cultivating that, I think is really essential. And then the other aspect is um, what I received from my supervisor at the CDC. Um, hands down, probably one of my favorite people in the world right now. Uh, he said he gave you some advice was literally um, find time to play. So finding time, whatever, however you want to define that, but finding time to play. So be it, you know, going climbing or um, cross-stitching or playing the ukulele or, you know, going for a walk or even just rolling down a hill. So having that, um, that time to kind of be a kid again and uh, continue to have that almost like a playfulness which I, which I'm definitely hoping to cultivate more and more over the years. I don't want to be a serious adult. Who wants to be that? So um, that's how I'm, that's been really helpful, I guess, words or advice that I've received that I hope to spread as well. So um, I think those are the main ones. (laughs) So at this point in the episode, I usually ask my guests if they have anything else that they want to share. And for the most part, they've always said no. And I figured, okay, great, we can end the episode off on this advice, which is always super helpful and super insightful. But when I asked Anima if she had anything else to say, she said that she had one other thing that she wanted to mention that she thought was important. And so I think it's a great thing to listen to. I want to see how this works, but I'm I'm going to ask so like ask the listeners or whoever's um, you know listen to this recording is to visualize like almost like a chart, so like an X and Y axis. I'm also visualizing right now. I just want to clarify on audio that I am also attempting to visualize right now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's see how this works. So yeah, visualize, visualize a chart. So literally like an X and Y axis. And at the very top, a long horizontal line, say it's like a blue color. It's like a blue line. And then below it is like a red line that goes like, it's oscillating like up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And what this is trying to signify is that the blue line signifies like your worth. So it's constant, it's high up there. Like this is your worth. And then below it, the red line, the oscillations describe how life can be, you know, it can go up and down a lot. But just knowing that even though the, even though there could be situations that aren't as good or, um, or really happy, your worth is still, you know, completely constant. And just it shows that it, your worth isn't defined by what happens.
This has been Humans of Grad School. You can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Humans of GS. If you want to get in touch, email humansofgradschoolpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.